Well, good morning, Congregation of Riverside. It is a joy to be here with you this morning um, and to be able to open God's Word and to see in it life, life for ourselves, hope that we would not have if we did not have Christ our Savior. And so this morning, we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 15. And in this chapter, Jesus is replying to the Pharisees, and he's going to give three parables. And for this sermon this morning, we're going to be looking at the parable of the prodigal son. And we're going to, this morning, look at the first half of that parable. This afternoon, the second half. But these three parables together, they're there for a reason, and they have a very similar theme as they, they work through. And so um, I just as we're reading the whole chapter, keep that in mind. Um, and we'll see the heart of heaven for repentant sinners. Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. 
And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. I don't think I would surprise anyone here if I said that the parable of the prodigal son is one of the best-known parables in the entire Bible. Many people who have never been through a church door are still familiar with the general story, or at least a portion of it. If you were to ask someone on the street, you might get a response like this. Oh, prodigal son, prodigal son. Isn't that the one where this son goes and lives a reckless life only to return home and be accepted by his father? And yes, in a sense, that isn't half bad, but it's still just that. It's a half. The second son is, almost, is often almost entirely forgotten. And that's a shame, for Jesus gave this whole parable for a reason. Now, for those who've grown up in the church, reading their Bibles and hearing the word preached week after week, you've probably come across this parable many times. And it's often not ignorance of the parable of the prodigal son that threatens us. Rather, at times, it can be a tendency towards over-familiarity. One of the challenges of being one of the best-known parables is that it can begin to feel like old news to us. Don't hear me wrong. It doesn't have to be like this, and it isn't always like this. But it can be. Maybe you've heard the saying, familiarity breeds contempt. Think about it. Do you listen with the same bright-eyed intensity on the 50th telling as you did on the first? Well, I'm covering a very familiar ground today by preaching on this incredible parable, I hope and pray that we'll be able to see it once again as it is. For it truly is an incredible parable given by our Lord, illustrating the heart of heaven towards the broken. This is a parable for you and me. This morning, we'll look at the first half and the younger son, and then this afternoon and evening, we will look at the older son. So let's begin by examining the context in which Jesus is delivering this parable. 
To do that, we can take up our Bibles and look at the start of chapter 15. In the first two verses there, we're introduced to the real-world characters that will later be seen in our parable. In verse 1, we see that there's an action going on. We have tax collectors and sinners, and they're going somewhere, and they're going to someone. They're going to Jesus. In verse 2, we're introduced to a different group who is also doing something. This group was comprised of the Pharisees and the scribes, and the action we find them busy with is grumbling. We can ask, why? Look what they say. This man receives sinners and eats with them. They despise the compassion of our Lord for the broken, for the lost. To do justice to Luke's account of Jesus' ministry, we must recognize that this is not a one-off situation. This is not the only time that we see the Pharisees and the scribes coming and grumbling about what they see Jesus doing. Back in Luke 5, we see this grumbling had occurred under very similar circumstances. Jesus there had called Levi, who's also known as Matthew, the tax collector, to be a disciple. In response, Levi had thrown a great feast for Jesus. And at that point, the Pharisees had also grumbled, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? If we look past our text here in Luke 15, we'll see that it happened again a little bit later on in Jesus' ministry. In Luke 19, we're told of the incredible conversion and joy of Zacchaeus, again, another tax collector, whose reception of Jesus ushered in another wave of scorn and grumbling. They say, He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. From this, we can see that we are dealing with hearts that were baked very hard, hearts that had no room for compassion and no love in them for repentant sinners. And so we see two groups emerging here. We have one group that's seeking and one group that's scorning. And to this mixed audience, Jesus is at the center. He's the cause of it all. And in response to the situation, he gives us the three parables that we've just read. The first was about a sheep, the second about a coin, and the third about two sons. All three are concerning the recovery of something that was lost. In each, we see a repeated trajectory. An item goes missing, an item is recovered, and celebration ensues. And while there are subtle differences between them all, In each, the theme of heaven's rejoicing over the recovery of the lost is unmistakable. More than a sheep, more than a coin, the point in each is the joy of heaven when a sinner is reconciled to God. Now, only one more note before we dive into this parable. And the point I want to make is exactly this, that this is a parable. And they can be a bit tricky. So I'll give you a definition. A parable is a fictional story that illustrates spiritual truths about God's kingdom. Sometimes with parables, there can be a temptation to try to make them say more than they were ever intended to say. And so this is helpful to know as you come to parables in your family worship or in your personal devotions, that when you're coming to, yes, a parable, that there's a way that you can kind of get to them, you can understand them. So when you read a parable, there's often one or two primary 
messages that it's bringing. Sometimes there's a little bit more, but it doesn't always hang everything on it. And the reason I wanted to take just a second to say that is that when we come to this parable or parables in general, we don't want to force them to say things that they don't actually say. In this case, the parable of the prodigal son does not explain in all the details how we are to be saved or the steps that Christ took to bring us salvation or to explain the payment that is needed for our sin. But it certainly does tell us a great deal about our Savior's willingness to save us. And that's the main point that our parable is making. This parable showcases the mercy and the grace of God towards sinners and heaven's joy in their reception. We're not expecting to find in this parable all the steps to salvation. And that is perfectly okay. Jesus was addressing the specific scenario before him and teaching two lost groups, the sinners, teach two lost groups of sinners, the heart of heaven for the broken and for the lost. And thereby he was inviting them and he's inviting us to come to him in repentance and be welcomed home. In this sermon, we'll be looking at the first half of Jesus' parable in the verses 11 to 24. We'll be dealing with the younger son and the events that lead to the eventual joyful reconciliation with his father. And a helpful way that I found to remember this parable is in this little phrase. And it's speaking about the younger son. It goes as follows. The younger son was sick of home. Then he was sick. Then he was homesick. And then he comes home. And since that really helpfully moves us through the passage, those will be the four points that we're going to break things down in today. So we'll see that first, in our first point, in the verses 11 to 13, we have this younger son as he is sick of home. In the second point, in the verses 14 to 16, we see the son as he's sick. Thirdly, in the verses 17 to the first half of verse 20, we see the son's homesickness. And then finally and fourthly, in the second half of verse 20 to the end of verse 24, we see the younger son come home. If you have your Bibles with you today, it'll probably be helpful to just have them so you can reference them as we work through the parable. In the first point then, let us see the younger son as he is sick of home. Having already given two parables, Jesus turns to a third to drive home his point. He also is going one step further. If the characters could be mistaken in the first two parables, this time they seem quite clear. Remember the context. Just as three groups were introduced earlier, in verse 11, three characters emerge. We see that there's a father and that this father has two sons. So far, nothing unusual. In verse 12, we get the first indication that things are not well in this family. And there, the younger son, he kicks the parable off by making a really outrageous demand. He says, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Let me be clear, this is not the demand of a respectful son. This is really rather outrageous. In that culture, you supported yourself off the property that you owned. 
In this demand, the son was asking his father to split up his livelihood and to give the younger son his portion now. If this was not enough, this was not typical practice. And while dividing of the property was occasionally done, it was insulting for the son to be the one to come to the father and make such a demand. As the younger of the two sons, he rightfully stood to inherit one-third of the estate, with two-thirds going to his older brother. However, it was typical to wait for the father to die before dividing the inheritance between the sons. So here we see that the son is essentially saying, Father, you're not dying fast enough. In fact, I wish you were already dead. But since you aren't, I don't feel like waiting around for you to die. So just hand it over now. And while I'm aware that our culture is very different from theirs, I'm sure you can imagine such a scenario unfolding. For the fathers and mothers here, what would such a cold-hearted demand do to your heart? Depending on your disposition, you may be tempted to fall into intense grief, or on the other side, perhaps to lash out in retaliation. How dare the son do such a thing? Who does he think he is? Maybe you think it's high time to put this child in his place. Or maybe tell him he's cut out of the will entirely. Yet, we are not told of a family argument ensuing. In the face of such coldness, the son is not disowned. As painful as the demand would have been to the father, we're only told that he complies with it, and he divided his property between his two sons. What is abundantly evident is that this son had no love or respect for his father. After such a demand, this son quickly doubles down on his first insult by stabbing another dagger into the heart of his father. In verse 13, we are told that not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had. In the original Greek, the word used for gathered, as in he gathered all his property, is a financial word which basically equates to liquidated his assets. Utterly despising his father, the son shows how sick of home he is by selling off everything that he had just been gifted. He wants the cash. You get the sense the son can't get away fast enough. Lacking means to leave before, he now wastes no time in getting away from under his father's gaze. Now, we have to look at the father. This would have been extremely humiliating for him. Only a few days prior, the property belonged to him. It was his, and his neighbors would have certainly known what was going on. And now it was liquidated in a fire sale to allow the son to leave at his earliest convenience. This was family property. If you think about their culture, perhaps this was generationally family property. And still, we're not told how the father responded. But for those who were listening, there could be no question. This was not a son who anyone would want to claim as their own. This was an ungrateful, disrespectful son, and a son who was utterly sick of home. However, as we know, this was only just the beginning. What follows is in a way tragic, but it's not altogether unexpected. After a bad introduction, the rotten character of the son is further revealed. In the second half of verse 13, the son earns the title of prodigal. This just means spending freely, not thinking at all. 
This was not merely a son looking to get out from under his father's shadow. He didn't want these assets to launch a new line of the family business in a faraway land and somehow prove to his father that he was worthy of his love. No, it couldn't be further from that. The younger son disdains his father and spends his inheritance without a tinge of regret or a thought for the future. And in one sense, we are all this son. See how quickly our feet start to stray from home. Our hearts are fickle and our eyes roam. How quickly we forget how good we have it in our father's house. It's all too true of us, that line from the hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. See that the younger son's rebellion can be found in our own hearts as well. And that rebellion, left unchecked, just as in this case, never leads to better things. The world's temptations will in the end be found to be utterly empty when compared with life lived in reliant obedience with our God. And that brings us to our second point. The younger son gets sick. Looking at verse 14, we see new depths. Having spent every last penny, this son reveals he's also a fool. He has no contingency plan. No forethought in what he would do after the money ran out. And again, the point is clear. This is a son that no father would be proud of. Who would claim such a son? When famine strikes, he begins to be in need. And from what we've learned so far, this is likely for the very first time in his life. So we may wonder, why did he not turn at this point? At the first pinch, why didn't he turn? But if we search our own hearts, we should discerningly question whether we might have. Pride has a way of clouding wisdom. Once embraced, sin tends to cling, attempting to hold the sinner in its death grip. It whispers, it lies, and it tempts us to think that we can somehow redeem the situation before us. And so it holds on to us much longer than it ever should. Now take a moment, this is especially true of hidden sins. This son was all alone in a faraway land. Just as this son was alone, and he didn't have the father there to call him out on his sin, so hidden sins are often dismissed or justified in our minds because the lie is believed that they don't impact anyone else, that they aren't that bad. But is that true? We know, of course not. But Satan loves to make sin seem like a little thing. And our culture doesn't help the Christian by celebrating what God expressly forbids. Often these sins hide way too long, for we think we can fix it ourselves. We think we can pull ourselves up. Brothers and sisters, we need to bring sin into the light. Bring it to another brother or sister who you trust, but above all, bring it before Christ and be clean. The son's pride was what was keeping him at bay, and he was not yet ready to confess to his father what he had done. We can see this around us. 
We can see it in our own hearts, and we can see it in the stories of many others who have walked that prodigal road before. Sometimes, though it is extremely painful, God allows people to fall very, very far so that they may be shown the depth of their lostness before they're brought to a place of repentance and reconciliation. In verse 15, we see that the descent continues. And now driven by his need to survive, the son willingly takes up work as a pig herder. You can almost picture the looks of disgust. For the Jew, this would have been unthinkable. It was the lowest of the low. If tax collectors and sinners were enough to make a Pharisee cross the street to avoid them, this was ten times worse. Pigs were unclean, and no self-respecting Jew would ever take this job. It seems that things are beginning to reach a climax. Here's the younger son, in a foreign land, without a penny, herding pigs, all alone. Again, the implied question, who would claim such a son? And yet there's one further level of descent. In verse 16, the bottom of the valley is reached. Out in the fields with the pigs, the son's hunger is so intense that he can no longer hold back. And there's no room for pride now. What could be viler than a pig or a pig herder? The food the pigs eat. These were pods from a tree that were never meant for human consumption. And yet the meaning here is that he had fallen so far that even pig's food began to look appetizing. To add to his distress, those around him who perhaps had witnessed his fall had no pity for him. No friend met him in his hour of need. No comforting words were offered. He was utterly alone in a far land, eyeing up pig food. I ask again, who among that crowd of Jesus' hearers would be ready to claim that son as their own? At last, here we have a son who had come to the very end of himself. He's reaping what he had sown in his desperate need. He's humbled. And here we see, congregation, how illogical sin is. It promises us the world, but it only leads to despair. But yet, it is when the younger son recognizes he is truly sick that the story begins to turn. Just so, when we see our brokenness, it is then that our story begins to turn as well. And that leads to our third point, the younger son's homesickness. If this was a cartoon, this would be the moment that the light bulb appears above the younger son's head. It was in the hour of his deepest despair that he recalls life in his father's house. Now a line from the prayer poem, The Valley of Vision, offers beautiful imagery appropriate here. The author prays, Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from the deepest wells. And the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. At the bottom of a deep, deep well, far from home, the remembrance of his father returns the son to himself. 
Now as a hired servant himself, he remembers his father's hired servants. They had more than enough. And here he was, perishing. And a plan begins to form in his mind. In the verses 18 and 19, we see what that plan is. Before taking a single step homeward, he prepares his confession. See what he intends to say. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. See that not a single finger is raised in defiance towards the father now. He sees that the blame lies fully on himself. And here is the heart of the truly homesick. Here is a son who longed to be home. At one point, he could not get far enough or fast enough away. But now, how far the miles must have seemed. In verse 20, we see the plan put into action. And this is very important. Actions speak louder than words. Without actions, this son is merely homesick and miserable. First, this son had gone away to hide his sin. But now he resolves to return home and tell all to his father. See that when his eyes are open, there's no longer room for excuses. He's done with them. They've completely melted away. And there's a progression here. If he had merely come to a realization of his sin, that would not have been sufficient. Often we can be convicted, but conviction is not the same thing as repentance. If and when, by God's grace, you feel convicted of sin old and new, do not leave it as just a conviction. Just as we see in the sun, repentance has legs. It needs to go somewhere. Repentance was made to run, to go. And so we must. We aren't to wait. We're to go immediately, to run to our Savior. And we have no excuse. Unlike this son, we know how this parable ends. I spoke of familiarity before. This is a very well-known parable. We know what's going to happen. And we know the theme, that heaven rejoices over one lost sinner who repents. We know the reception that awaits this son. We know more than he did. And we know the heart of heaven, the heart of Jesus, even as he's giving this parable. That he is the one who came to make reconciliation possible. Dearly beloved, when we have conviction, we are to turn and be healed. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. As a wise brother once told told me, and it has stuck with me ever since. This is what he said. The path back to Jesus is one step. It's one step. You can run 100 miles, but when you turn, Jesus is right behind you. Right behind you. With his confession prepared, the son heads for home. And so we come to the final points and likely everyone's favorite part of the parable. And for such a good reason. The son comes home. What sort of a reception did the son expect? From our parable, it appears that the son recognized he was unworthy of any reception at all. 
How beautiful and unexpected then are the words that we find here. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. Our question from earlier of who would claim this son are brushed aside in a moment. The father has been watching, he's been longing, he's been missing his son. And now here he is. The lost son was coming home. The father has such an eagerness that he runs forth to close the gap between them. Now, in that culture, for a man of his position and age, running was not only impractical because they were wearing a robe, but it was just socially unacceptable. It wasn't done. And yet the father cares little about social convention. He can bear the humiliation. His only concern is to draw near to his son. And in this illustration, we can see the heart of heaven, the heart of heaven for us. We may take a deep look at the compassion of our God. And here we see the love of Christ, for he came to seek and to save the lost. And so now in the arms of his loving father, the son attempts to make his confession. And you can picture the scene. I can't picture it without imagining tears in both of their eyes. And the son's voice breaks forth in the often recited confession. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And dear congregation, these words could fall from all of our lips with the same truth. Even as we are here today in our own father's house as unworthy sons and daughters, this could be our prayer. These could be our words. Yet, brothers and sisters, look carefully. Was this the confession that was planned? Partly. Partly, yes, But see that the son never even finishes his planned speech. Whatever happened to treat me as one of your hired servants? It's not there. It's as if a hand is held up. Stop, my son. Stop. I need to hear no more. Is there any question at all that this father has accepted his son? At a word from the father, servants are sent to fetch the best robe, a ring for his finger and shoes for his feet. The son is accepted back, not as a hired servant, but with all the marks and privileges of sonship. The father doesn't force the son to recite every sin that he'd committed in that far land, nor does he demand compensation for the loss of his livelihood. And here is the heart of heaven. That the son was unworthy, Jesus had made abundantly clear. The son knew it, and he'd confessed it. He'd confessed his sin, and he was forgiven. And so it was, if we step back, for the tax collectors and the sinners who were coming to Jesus. And they saw this. In their repentance, they found in Jesus complete forgiveness. And Jesus forgave willingly. And we can see the same here. For this is his heart. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. A feast is called for and celebration ensues. 
And just look from where he was to where he ends up. He was in the mire of the pig pen, and he was eyeing up pig's food. He was in abject loneliness with not a penny to his name. And then we go to the embrace of a father. The invitation to enter into his house as a son. To come to the table and to even eat the fattened calf. And this is the story of the Christian. As the father says in verse 24, For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This last portion inevitably strikes to the heart of God's children. We are this son. We are not treated as our sins deserve. Grace and mercy are written with such thick strokes upon this page. And it's heaven's way. See that even the angels rejoice over the sons that return. So brothers and sisters, you may come to your father's house. You may come to Christ. You can run to those open arms again and again and again. Trust that when you come as this son came, your sins are forgiven. They're finished. And too often, we live under a shadow of our past sins. As if God somehow hasn't forgiven them, even though he says he has. But what more do we need to see than this lesson of the father's reception of his son? When you come with a heart full of repentance and ask that those sins be forgiven, the blood of Christ is fully sufficient. They're removed forever. They're gone. See the willingness with which grace is lavished. Our Savior cries out, come to me. And so we may. We who at our very best are nothing more than unworthy sons and daughters. We may come and we may be found. Jesus gave this parable because the Pharisees despised Jesus' compassion towards sinners on earth. But here in this parable, he shows that his compassion goes deeper than they ever could have imagined. Deeper than we can even comprehend. We look at our situation. We stand like this prodigal son. We have nothing to commend ourselves to our God. Our sin marks every single action that we do. We're like that prodigal, alone, standing in a far country, unable to bridge the gap between the righteousness of our God and the depravity that sits upon our hearts. Distant and alone, that's what we deserve. But just as this prodigal son is swept into the arms of his father, so we are brought as sons and daughters into the father's house. And it's all because of the one who was telling this parable, the one who was revealing the depth of his love for the lost, for sinners, even for the scribes and the Pharisees, for you and me. We were dead, and we are found, and we are dead until we are found. And we are found only in Christ. Just as in the parable, the son pays no price to be readmitted. We, who had a debt that we never could afford, come and eat without price at the banquet table of our God. But brothers and sisters, There was a price. It's just not us who was paying. 
And that price was Jesus' life for ours. His blood making atonement for our sins. And he went to the cross of Calvary and died there for you and me. But look at the lesson of our parable. This was not unwillingly done. There is joy written all over it. It's the joy of heaven to receive the broken and the lost. Fully knowing the cost, Jesus came willingly and he rejoices to bring repentant sons and daughters home. And there's a hymn that sums this up very beautifully. And like the psalmist of old, I've found that when I'm struggling for words to say exactly what I want to say, this hymn does a good job in expressing it. And perhaps you know this hymn. I'm not going to attempt to sing it, but you can hear in it the wonder of the mercy of your God. It goes like this. What love could remember no wrongs we have done? Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. What patience would wait as we constantly roam? What father so tender is calling us home? He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. What riches of kindness he's lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the, crop, was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. But his mercy is more. Dearly beloved, in the illustration of this father, see the heart of heaven for you. See the mercy of Christ, no matter how broken, how despicable, how lost you have been, or perhaps even are at this very moment, even if it's only known to yourself, how utterly unworthy or cold your heart seems, you may turn and see the arms of Christ held open. And you may know that heaven stands ready to rejoice. If you look at yourself and wonder, who would claim such a son or daughter? This parable gives you the answer. There's a Savior who came to do just that. And so as God's word goes forth today, today is the day for lost sons and daughters to be found. Perhaps for the first time, perhaps for the 50,000th time. As the younger son went to the father in all his unworthiness, owning his sin as his own, you may come to your Savior. So never grow weary of coming. See in this illustration of the father that the arms of Christ never grow tired of receiving sinners, of receiving us. So may he ever give us the grace to answer his cry, to come. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we are all unworthy sons and daughters, and our sin penetrates so deeply. 
And we have all taken willful strides to declare our own sovereignty. Yet how patient you are and how merciful and how wonderful is your grace. Please help us again to turn and may you shine the light of your grace upon us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for the parable of the prodigal son, for what it teaches us about your heart for sinners and what it teaches us about our own hearts, that our sin is not so disgusting to you that you turn up your nose and push us away, let your arms remain open, open to all who would come, that even if all the world should disown or mock us, that you accept the broken who come in genuine repentance seeking you and pleading your righteousness. Dear Holy Spirit, stir up our hearts again. Stir us up to daily repentance. Grant us joy in being reconciled. And may we one day share all the more fully in heaven's joy. O Lord, we are so weak, and you know this full well. But help us to remember that your faithfulness endures forever, for you have said so. It is who you are. May our gaze be turned homeward. And so to you we pray. To you be all the glory now and forever. In Jesus' perfect name. Amen.